Acts chapter 3 tonight. Acts chapter 3. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you for your patience. Um, We have done everything we humanly know to do to try to fix the problem here on Tuesday night. All I can tell you is we'll keep trying to get this more comfortable for everybody. Um, you know, I, I just really hope that we can land on something with the district here where it's just more comfortable. But thank you guys. I, I know it's not the most comfortable in here. In fact, if my teeth start to chatter while I'm speaking, you know. All right. I, I do appreciate it. I, I love the fact that God has provided Basha High School. Don't get me wrong. It, it's been a gift from God. But anytime you do basically mobile church, um, there's some challenges. And I just so appreciate the people that basically lug stuff here and lug it back on Tuesdays and on Sundays. Uh, you know, Bob and all the stuff that he does here on Tuesday nights and the children and all the stuff that they do on Sundays and Tuesdays. And if you get a chance, tell them thank you. That's an extra effort. Yeah. I, I think that we can obviously learn, glean a lot from the early church. There's There's some things that don't translate to us, but there's much that does that we can apply to our life. And so we're just going to go down through Acts chapter 3 tonight, and I just want to share with you folks just some of the highlights that God really challenged me with and and just made me aware of, uh, of how I can translate what happened a couple thousand years ago into my own walk with him every day. And the first thing is, as we're introduced to this chapter, we're introduced to Peter and John. And it was almost like God said, Jeff, don't forget, I don't want you to do this alone. Everybody needs a team. Everybody needs a spiritual partner. Everybody needs, if you're a Peter, you need a John. If you're John, you need a Peter. As I've told people, you know, for years, I've encouraged them that, Every Christian needs a Paul in your life, someone who's building into your life. You need a Barnabas, someone who sort of is your spiritual equal, and we need a Timothy, someone that we're building into. But Peter and John are sort of spiritual equals. They're, they're, they're encouraging each other. And I just encourage you to have someone in your life that you can walk with the Lord with, just like Peter and John did. They're modeling this here in the early church. Even though they were strong in their own right, we could say, they didn't try to walk the walk alone. They ministered together, they worshiped together, they prayed together, they studied together. There was that dynamic always, and we need to still have that dynamic today. But you'll notice it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time for prayer. First of all, the phrase, we're going up, means the pattern of their footsteps. In other words, this was 
This was the pattern of their life. This wasn't just something they were doing that day. This was something that they always did. I, I think of my own life and go, what would God consider the pattern of my footsteps? Where do I go? What do I do? What do I occupy my day with? What is the pattern of my life? There's obviously some really good patterns that we can have in our life. Things that we do daily, things that we do weekly. And that's exactly what Peter and John was doing here. And the Bible says that they went up to the temple at the time of prayer. It just reminds us that obviously God encourages us as believers in Jesus Christ to pray at all times. But there also, I think, needs to be those times that we set aside to meet with God and pray. Because if you're like me, if you just say, you know, well, God, I'm going to fit you in somewhere here today, that usually the day goes by and we haven't. So Peter and John are just simply, again, modeling for us at that moment that they set aside a certain time each day to say, this is my time with God. And that's important as well. Now, verse 2 introduces us to sort of one of the main characters in this passage. He's a man who's been lame from his birth, and he was being carried up, who was placed at the temple gate called the Beautiful Gate every day so he could beg for money from those going into the temple courts. And they weren't stupid. They were taking advantage of the fact that people wanted to show themselves pious as they went to church. And so obviously, if you're sitting there by the entrance to the temple or church or whatever, uh, that's probably a pretty good place to get some money. And there was nothing wrong with that. I don't mean it that way. I just He was strategically placed. Let's put it that way. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money, which is what he did every day. And the Bible says in verse 4 that Peter looked directly at him, as did John. And the thing that as I studied this phrase, it meant something to me because we could pass by, but it's exactly what Peter and John didn't do. They could have kept on going. But the Bible says that they stopped and they literally focused on this man. You see, there's something powerful about that. Um, And I guess what God was trying to say to me through this was, be careful that even as I'm going through the day, and even maybe going towards what I'm usually doing and going to the pattern of my life, that I don't miss out on maybe an opportunity to focus on someone that really needs me to focus on them at that moment. And they were willing to do this. And then they said, look at us. And what now they're asking this lame man to do is don't worry about all the people passing you by that could be giving you more money while you take time to stop also and focus on us. And in a sense, the words look at us literally mean be willing to go deeper in order to discover something here. It's like don't miss out on something for you either. 
that God may have something for all of us to discover if we would just take the time to stop and look a little bit beneath the surface, if you will. And that's sort of what Peter and John is inviting this man to do. Yes, you're lame. Yes, you've been here from birth. Yes, you're carried here every day. Yes, you ask people for money as they go into the temple. But I'm asking you right now that, that we want you to focus on us and stop what you're normally doing here because we want you to discover something. Sometimes we have to be willing to take a pause because there's something we are going to miss if we keep sort of rushing along with life. And there's something that God wants us to get that's sort of below the surface that we're not going to discover if we keep going at the pace we are. That's what's happening here. And so the lame man, notice, paid attention to them. He focused on them. But the Bible goes on. Obviously, he expected to receive something from them. And we know what he expected to receive. It was money, which is all that he ever knew to receive. But notice in verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver or gold. In fact, it's interesting that Again, in the original language, Peter's basically saying, I got nothing. But what I do have, I give you. Now, a couple things here. This is not against us physically, materially meeting people's needs about what, what I'm going to say. Chapter 4 of Acts is a great balance to chapter 3 because next week we're going to look at the fact that one of the dynamics of the early church was they were very good at meeting the physical, material needs of one another and of people. But I think one of the things that God impressed upon me was, Jeff, be reminded that not every situation or problem or struggle that someone has, even though they may think the answer is money, it isn't always the case. In fact, many times what they really need isn't money. Many times the real need of their life is much deeper than anything physical or material that we could give them. And that's something I think that Peter and John and God obviously wanted this man and other people to discover. The other thing that I'm encouraged about is this, that obviously there are times where we have and we have opportunity to give and we should. But you and I, every once in a while in life, may be in a place financially where we don't have it to give. And this passage, to me, is a great encouragement to any of us in that situation at times in our life where that's okay, too. Peter didn't feel bad about, I, I don't have anything. But what he did do was he gave them what he did have. And any of us, regardless of where we are financially, we can be like Peter and John and say, well, I don't have the silver and gold you're looking for, but I can give you something. And again, what they were about to give him was really even more important than any silver or gold if they did have it. And so, keep those things in mind. God doesn't ever ask any of us to give 
out of what we don't have. What God will do is come to us with what we do have and expect us at times to give it up or share it or whatever. But he never asks us for anything that we don't have. And so Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name or by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And this phrase means take the first step of many and begin to overcome. We all know in life, the first step is always the hardest step in anything. And this would have especially been true of this man who was lame from birth. He'd never walked. So to take a step was huge for him. But we can even translate that into our lives. Taking the first step in any new direction, if you will, or to any new territory in our life, that's always the most difficult. It's that getting going. In fact, Lisa and I were just had a chance to grab a cup of coffee together this afternoon after a busy day apart, and one of the things we were talking about was some people that we know who we wish just had the, the strength, if you will, that inner strength to be able to make a move in their life that would so better them, but they just, they're just not willing to take that step. And if they just took that first step towards it, it, it would almost, it's almost like that dynamic that, that God said, you know, at any time, take that first step of faith, you know, to the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River. You know, I'm not going to part the river until, you know, you dip your feet into the Jordan. And it's almost like when we take that first step of faith, then we begin to see things open up, but not before. And that's the invitation that, Peter was giving to this man, and it's something that we need to be reminded of too. Peter is saying to this man, stand up and walk. Take that first step of many that you will take for the rest of your life and begin to overcome. And then I love this. What a beautiful picture. Then Peter took hold of him by the right hand and raised him up. And the reason this is a beautiful picture is because even though this man was totally healed, completely instantaneously healed, and could have gotten up in a sense on his own, Peter, again, is modeling for us something that we need to do throughout our lives as Christians. And it's something that God does with and for us. Because the phrase, took him by the right hand, literally means Peter drew him to himself. And it's almost like Peter understood that as you take your first step in this new direction, I understand it's going to be daunting, so you're not going to do this on your own. I'm going to be right there with you, and I'm drawing you to myself. And let's take that first couple steps together. The Bible says that, that when you and I are in that same place, that God wants to draw us to himself in order that we walk those first couple steps with God as well for that reassurance, if you will. That's exactly what Peter was doing here. It's the kind of, of, of believer that God wants us to be with others. That when we know they're taking that first steps, they're, they're 
in a new direction. They're doing something new. That we come alongside of them, which is what the word comfort and encouragement means. It's exactly the reason why the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. And we come alongside people and we draw them to ourselves and we help them as they take those first couple of steps. So that again, going back to the very beginning, they're not having to take those steps on their own, Peter and John. And the Bible says at once the man's feet and ankles were made strong. He jumped up, stood, and began walking around. He entered the temple courts with them walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, get the picture in your mind here. This is a man who's never walked. All his life he's been a beggar at the temple. He never knew what it was like to feel his legs being able to support his body. And now all of a sudden he's dancing. They can't keep him down. And whether you want to put yourself in the lame man's place in this passage, or Peter and John, or the onlookers, it was an amazing scene that day at the temple. In fact, the Bible says in verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him. They were thoroughly acquainted, the Bible says, with this man, because he used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they knew who he was. You can imagine seeing a man or a woman that you knew was in this condition their whole life and now all of a sudden everything's changed. And you and I would be just like they were. The Bible says they were filled with astonishment. Literally they were dumbfounded is what the Greek means. And amazed at what had happened to him. And at this moment in time, through this miracle, through this sign, God has for a moment their undivided attention. Which is exactly why he did this miracle through Peter and John. He wanted to use this as an avenue to be able to go deeper. To get these people to stop in their tracks for a moment and discover something that they would not discover if they keep rushing on with life. That, that's why every once in a while in our lives, God will change our life in some way or, or allow something to come into our life that's going to sort of displace us from the norm so that we take a moment and stop because it's in those moments of pause and stopping sometimes in our life that we are discovering things that we normally wouldn't discover if we didn't take time to stop and pause. And then verse 11. While the man was hanging on to Peter, again, he had been healed. He didn't have to hang on to Peter, but again, this word means empowered by. It's the idea again that Peter and John are encouraging this man as he's taking these new steps in his life. One of the things throughout history that we haven't done a very good job of as a church from Acts till now is that you know, we, we, we so want to get people saved. We want them to pray the sinner's prayer. We, we, we want new believers. But then it's almost like for, for many new believers, they're like, oh good, you're saved. Now, go live the rest of your life there on your own. And especially those first few critical steps as a new believer should be just the way they handled this lame man. 
that there are people like Peter and John around them, drawing them to themselves, and that we're walking through, especially those first days, those first weeks, those first months, those first years with a new believer, to get them on the right track. But many times as churches and as fellow Christians, as excited as we are to see people come to faith, there's no follow-up. There's no laying that strong foundation for them so that there's a solid foundation underneath them like the lame man had. So while the man was hanging on to Peter and John, all the people, completely astounded, ran together to them in the covered walkway called Solomon's Portico. By the way, as you walked in tonight, if you noticed, we have a Solomon's portico right out here. There's a covered walkway right out there. It would have been very similar to the one that they're describing here in Acts chapter 3. And when Peter saw this, he declared to the people. And, and the interesting thing here is the words saw this. It doesn't just mean he physically saw all these people. It, it again means he stopped long enough to consider what was going on and saw that God was presenting an opportunity to him that he needed to seize. And again, God spoke to me about that. That I need to live my life as a believer in Jesus Christ where I'm able to discern the opportunities that God gives me when they come. Whether it's a conversation with somebody, whether it's a, a witnessing opportunity, whether it's helping someone in need, whatever that is. Just like they did with the lame man at first when they were, instead of just continuing to walk into the temple and say, you know, have a good day, we'll see you when we come out. They stopped and seized the opportunity to allow this man to discover something that he would have never discovered otherwise. And now Peter's doing the same thing. And the reason this is important is because this whole early chapters of Acts is all about how the Spirit leads us and guides us and empowers us. Jesus said, you shall receive uh, power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts chapter 1-8. And so these are all evidences of these people being led and guided by the Spirit. And there's no magic formula, folks. It's just a matter of us learning to walk in the Spirit to the point where we just know those opportunities when they come. We, we know that we should stop and pause and maybe change direction for a moment because here's something that God has brought to us that we didn't see coming, but it's very important that we seize the moment. And that's what Peter did. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And the reason why that's important is because he's basically saying, you're limited by what man can do. That's why you're so amazed. See, if you, if you believed in the God that we believe in, you wouldn't be amazed at this. Because the reason you're amazed at this is because you're looking at this strictly from a human perspective. He says, you and I have to start living life from a God perspective. Nothing's too hard for God. Why, why would you be amazed that couldn't God do this? But these people had gotten so used to not seeing God in their life and working in their life that when God did something like this, they didn't know how to deal with it or reconcile it. And then, if nothing else, Peter knew that the next thing was not only that they were blown away by what happened, but then they were going to start thinking that it was them that did it. Which is why he says, why do you stare at us as if we made this man walk by our own power or piety? 
We have no inherent strength or godliness within us to do this. We're just simply channels through the power of God that's working here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, has glorified or magnified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate after he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who was a murderer be released to you. And the reason why that little couple sentences is significant coming from Peter is because the word rejected can also mean denied. And it reminds us how far Peter has come by accepting God's forgiveness for his own denials when he can stand up seven weeks later and basically say, you guys denied him. Well, Peter did too. But Peter's just pointing out, you're right, I did not. And if anybody would have called Peter on, I'm sure he said, yeah, you're right, I did. I denied him three times, just like he predicted. But I'm not denying him now. And I'm calling upon you, my brothers and sisters in the house of Israel, I'm calling upon you to deny him no more. And then verse 15, you killed the originator of life. Like an oxymoron, how can you kill the originator of life? Well, you can't, obviously. Whom God raised up from the dead. And Peter goes on to say, to this fact we are witnesses. Again, the Greek word is martis, where we get our word martyr. In other words, they were willing to be witnesses even to death about this, which most of them did give up their lives as witnesses. And on the basis, verse 16, of faith in Jesus' name, which just simply means in all that he is, the name of someone just embodied all that they were. So Peter just saying, on the basis of faith in all that Jesus is, his very name has made this man whom you see and know strong. Now I want to point out something. This is a great instance where God, again, doesn't work the same way in everybody's life the same. I guess. There were times in the Gospels where Jesus would call upon someone's faith in order to be healed. But what Peter is saying here is that it wasn't this guy's faith that healed him because the Bible never says the lame man put any faith in Jesus. It was Peter and John's faith in who God was and in what God could do that healed this man. So this man, according to Acts chapter 3, never demonstrated any faith. And there's other instances of that too. Where God just simply healed somebody, not based upon their faith. And it shows us that God understands in his wisdom what is needed at that moment. And how God wants to work. But Peter and John had faith. They had faith that God was great enough and that nothing was too hard for God. If God wanted to heal this man who had been lame from birth, God could do it. And that's the faith he's talking about here. Where's our faith? And again, it's not the size of our faith, as I point out. Because Jesus said, you and I can have faith the size of a mustard seed. It's not the size of our faith as much as it is the object of our faith. Where is our faith? Who is our faith in? And again, according to Peter and throughout the Bible, it's a matter of putting our faith in the right place, in Jesus Christ. And do we really believe that with God, all things are possible? 
As Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, 17, nothing is too hard for you. And when we live that way, then we live from, again, a totally different perspective. Instead of being amazed and astonished by seeing God work in our lives and other people's lives and all of this, we, we begin to truly expect God to do it. Because we know that that's who he is. That's his nature. That's his character. I like this word strong at the end or in the middle of verse 16. This very name has made this man whom you see and know strong. The word means solid and firm. And it reminded me of a verse in the Old Testament. I'll just turn there real quickly for the sake of time and read it to you because this is exactly what God wants to do in our lives. When he heals us or restores us or makes us whole, he wants to set us firmly on a solid foundation. And that's exactly what he did with this lame man. He healed him, but he wanted to set him on a solid foundation. So Psalm 42 is the the verse I wanted to share. The psalmist writes, He lifted me out of the watery pit, out of the slimy mud, and he placed my feet on a rock and gave me secure footing. That's what God wants to do with all of us. He wants to take us out of living life slipping and sliding around and being tossed to and fro, Paul says to the Ephesians, and he wants to set me on a rock and give me secure footing to navigate life. And that's exactly what the word strong means back in Acts chapter 3. That was the kind of firm footing that this man now had. It was solid, it was firm. His legs weren't, you know, he wasn't like wobbling around or whatever. When, G- when, when Jesus healed him through Peter and John, his legs were strong. And he had a firm base now and a firm foundation underneath of him. And it was a great illustration of what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to give us that stability and security to know that there are things beyond what we can see that are solid that we can count on. And then Peter goes on to say, the faith that is through Jesus has given him this complete health in the presence of you all. So he says, and now brothers and sisters, I know you acted in ignorance as your rulers did too. But make no mistake about it, the word that he uses here for ignorance doesn't mean he's excusing them. The word means ignorant of things you should have known. In other words, he's not excusing them or letting them off the hook. He said, yeah, you were ignorant, but you were willingly ignorant. You should have known the scriptures. You should have known what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And because you weren't people of the book, as we've talked about, they missed their own Messiah. In fact, he goes on to confirm this. In verse 18, when he says, the things God foretold long ago through all the prophets. And here's the specific thing that they stumbled over. That his Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. See, that's the part they didn't buy into. It was there all the time. It's still there in the Old Testament. When Messiah came, he would come to die. He would come to be crucified. He would come to suffer. The Jews rejected a suffering Messiah, even though it was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. So again, it reminds all of us that we've got to be careful as Christians. 
that when we approach the Bible and when we read the Bible and we study it, that we don't come to the Bible with our own sort of preconceived theology and ideas and try to make the Bible fit what we're doing and, and, and what we believe. We've got to allow the Bible to form our own thinking in life. And that's the whole reason why the Jews missed their own Messiah. Because they just couldn't let their minds go to the fact that their Messiah would suffer and die. Even though it was clearly taught in the Old Testament. So again, they were ignorant, but they were ignorant about things they should have known. And because they were ignorant about things they should have known, they missed, they missed what God had for them. I don't want us, I don't want myself to miss what God has for me because I'm not looking where I should be looking and letting God shape my thinking and the way I do things and how I approach life instead of trying to live life the way I want to and then somehow going into the word of God and trying to justify it. Verse 19. Peter tells him a couple things. Therefore, repent which simply means to start thinking differently so you live differently, and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out or erased. The phrase turn back simply means an acknowledgement of going in the wrong direction. It's what men who are driving never want to do. At least that's what they tell us, right? Men will never stop and ask for directions even if they're lost because they never want to acknowledge that they're lost, that they're going in the wrong direction. But Peter is making a very important point spiritually that all of us have to get to a point in our life where we let go of that pride and where we are willing to say, I could be wrong about this. And here's the reason why we need to do that. Very important point Peter makes that, that's very practical and applicable to our own lives today. Not only that our sins may be wiped out or erased, but verse 20, don't miss this, and this goes along with the whole value of the oasis, that the times of refreshing or restoration or recovery may come from the presence of the Lord. Don't miss this. Peter is making a very important point to them and to us. And basically it's this, a lack of confession brings spiritual dryness into our lives as believers. If I'm not willing to own up to being in a wrong place, to, to doing it wrong, acknowledging my own sin... That's why John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There will be fruitfulness, there will be refreshment in our lives, there will be restoration, there will be recovery. It will all be like sitting down at an oasis in a, in a dry desert and going, wow, God, this is so refreshing. But if I'm not willing to admit that I may be wrong that I've went in a wrong direction or saw something wrong or done something wrong, throughout the Old Testament especially, the Bible says that one of the consequences of that will be spiritual dryness. I think about David. After his affair with Bathsheba, 
He even in his own words said, it felt like my bones were just drying up within me and there was this dryness in my soul until I finally owned up to what I did and said, against you God and you only have I sinned. And he finally confessed his sin after Nathan pointed the finger in his face and it was after that that David began once again to experience the Lord's refreshing in his life. Sometimes as believers, the reason we don't sense that refreshment and we're in a spiritual dry place, sometimes it's because we haven't turned back. We haven't admitted, you know what, God, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I need to confess. And then he says, so that he also may send the Messiah. Now, obviously, this is the second time he's going to send the Messiah. Appointed to you, that is Jesus. And this one now, heaven must receive until the time all things are restored, which God again declared from times long ago through his holy prophet. And the encouragement thing there is the word restored. means God one day is going to return things to the state that he intended for them. Can I just say hallelujah to that one? That one of the things we can take away from this as well that they looked forward to was a time when God was going to set everything straight and restore this world, at least, to the way God intended for it to be for a time during the earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the fact that God declared this again long ago through his holy prophets. And then Peter picks up on this. Verse 22. I'm about done. Give me a couple more minutes. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must obey him in everything he tells you. Every person who does not obey that prophet will be destroyed and thus removed from the people. And you and I are probably going, why did Peter include this in here now? For this reason, if you go back and get the historical context of what Peter's talking about here, after Moses was going off the scene, the people of God begged God for a prophet. God, don't leave us without someone like Moses. Give us a prophet. Almost the same kind of uh, environment that was in the book of, of uh, you know, judges. And Give us a king, God. We, we need a king, you know. Well, God, you know, they they wanted a king, so they got Saul. So the Lord gave them a prophet because they asked for a prophet. Not because that was necessarily God's first choice. And when God gave them another prophet, he clearly in the book of Deuteronomy instructed them how to discern false prophets from true prophets. We're going to get to why Peter includes it here. So jump ahead a couple thousand years. When Jesus came, he was prophet, priest, and king. And the people of God in general, the nation of Israel, judged Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, a false prophet. And Peter said, you're in trouble. You ask God for a prophet. God even gave you the tools to be able to discern a true prophet from a false prophet. You should have clearly 
by the tools that God had already given you, you should have seen Jesus and, and heard Jesus and said, there's the Messiah. He is a true prophet from God. We need to listen to him. In fact, even John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was telling people, hear him, listen to him. I, I'm just the one that, I'm not even worthy to, you know, loosen his sandal. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Listen to him. And even when Jesus was baptized, the Bible says a dove came down and hovered above Jesus' head and they heard this voice from heaven and the voice from heaven was God the Father who told all those at the baptism of Jesus, listen to him, he's my son. They still missed it. So Peter here again is just saying, guys, you had everything you needed. But you weren't at that moment walking with your God and using the tools that God gave you and, and, and using the resources that God gave you to get the fullness that God wanted you to have. And I think for me, the message just simply was, Jeff, make sure that doesn't happen in your life. That the resources that God gives me, the tools that God gives me, that I soak it all up. And can I just say this too? the friends that God has given me. Let me not miss any of it so that I can experience life to the fullest. Rather than being like the people of God who had all the tools and didn't use them. And missed their Messiah. So let's wrap this up. All the prophets, verse 24, from Samuel and those who followed him have spoken about and announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, says, saying to Abraham. And in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, I know he's speaking here about Israel and to Israel, but God wants to do the same thing through us today as well. And I'm not saying that we're Israel. We don't take the place of Israel. But I'm simply saying, as God's people, he does want to bless others through us. Don't ever forget that. God blesses us so that we in turn can bless others. Who did God want me to bless today that I might have missed out on? Who may God want me to bless tomorrow that I need to seize that opportunity? Verse 26, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. And in, in parting or closing tonight, I just want to make this point, because we live in a world today, even amongst you know, Christians, where it, we characterize God's blessings primarily, many times, by how he blesses us materially and physically. But I want you to note something here from the word of God. When Peter and when Luke records how he's talking about how God richly blesses us, the specific example that he uses about God's blessing in our life, isn't what material or physical blessing God gives us. It's about turning each one of us from our iniquities, literally rescuing us from our sin and separating us from our sin. And again, not separating us as far as distancing ourselves from what we've done in the past as much as separating us from the sin we're struggling with now. 
Remember, salvation is not only being saved from the penalty of sin, it's being saved from the power of sin right now, today, in my life. And that's what God wants to do. That's one of the greatest ways God blesses us as believers in Jesus Christ, is he gives us the power to separate ourselves from the sin that so easily besets us and gets us off track and drags us down. And that's one of the greatest blessings of God. But when we think about God's blessing, being that we live in a very materialistic society, we're always thinking about God's blessing as far as physical and material things. In the Bible, you will find that most of the time the Bible talks about God's blessing, it is not in the physical or material realm. It is in the spiritual realm, as he talks about here. God wants to rescue us from the pain and hardship of living life apart from him. And Peter says, that's the best thing I could ever give you. That's, that's better than any silver or gold that even if I had it, that's the message of Acts chapter 3. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for just this great record of the early church, the dynamics of relationships and the dynamic of, of their walk with you. And Lord, we're not here to build up any human beings, Peter, John, any of them, because we understand that they were just simply being led and guided and empowered by your spirit. There is nothing they could have done on their own. Even Peter acknowledged that. It wasn't it wasn't anything that we did that could have ever made this lame man walk. It was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man before you is whole. And God, help us never to take the credit that only you deserve. And God, though, help us to understand that if we are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have drawn us to yourself and you want to walk through this life every step of the way with us, that we have the God who created the heavens and the earth. And nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is impossible for you. Help us to look to you and trust in you and know, God, that you want to bless us in order that we can be a blessing to others. Remind us of these truths throughout this next week and bring us back next Tuesday night that we can dive back into Acts chapter 4. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. Have a great rest of the week. See some of you on Sunday, hopefully. <laughs>